This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Andrew Miller. Hello. We also have Rufaro Manyepa. Hello. And Josh Taylor. Hi. And from our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. It is amazing how much political tumult there is in the world right now. It seems like two or three world leaders are falling each week now. This week, our editor-in-chief wrote a trumpet brief about the political crises taking over three countries that are linked in biblical prophecy, America, Britain, and Israel, the Jewish state. The title of that article is Britain's and Judah's Governments Fall, America Next. It's a remarkable story. I do encourage you to go to thetrumpet.com and read that article from Gerald Fleury. But these three nations, uh, America, Britain, and Israel, aren't the only nations having major political crises. The first two stories that we'll talk about on the show today concern other nations that are in trouble. The first is Italy. Uh, The prime minister of this nation just tried to resign, but wasn't allowed to. To learn about what is happening here, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi tried to step down. So as a bit of background, Mario Draghi is kind of, you know, he was brought in because Italian politics were quite the mess. They wanted a solid, steady kind of pair of hands. Mario Draghi used to be the head of the European Central Bank. He was... Uh, basically the man who steered Europe through the euro crisis. He's very well respected in the financial markets. So he was brought in to to stabilize things. Uh, This week, he almost left over a disagreement about a garbage incinerator for your Americans, a waste incinerator being built by Rome, kind of like Boris Johnson and um, his scandal last week, something that doesn't feel like it should be bringing down a, a prime minister and uh, in this case, potentially causing a continent-wide world-changing economic crisis. Uh, <laughs> but uh, as Boris Johnson said last week, them's the breaks. Uh, he's uh, he, He's been trying to hold together this quite wide-ranging coalition where Italy has been having these brand new parties popping up all over the place. Some of them are kind of populist, experimenting with direct direct democracy and have people go online and vote for stuff. Other parties are kind of neo-fascist, with one of, led by wannabe Mussolini's. Uh, and he's trying to kind of keep these all together for the sake of Italy. This week, the Five Star Movement, the kind of direct democracy party that has a strong environmentalist streak, uh, they refuse to support the government uh, over this argument over whether Rome would be allowed to build a rubbish compactor and also disagreements over uh, cost of living crisis, this kind of thing. So uh, Mario Draghi held a confidence vote. The five-star movement abstained. He still won the vote. But when he got the job, he said he didn't want to govern without the support of the five-star movement. The five-star movement, uh, they were the largest party or largest party grouping after the last election. He kind of felt that without them in his coalition, he wouldn't really have the democratic legitimacy to do things. When they didn't vote for him, uh, he went in there and offered his resignation. And then you had the president, Sergio Mattarella, refuse to accept it. So uh, Ball's kind of back in Italian parliament's court. They're going to come back next week, probably on Wednesday, 
and uh, hold another kind of a vote. And in some ways, it's 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 up to Draghi. It's up to some of these other leaders, uh, whether they all kind of follow through on what they've said. Other members of the coalition have said they will quit if the five star movement quits and that they will vote for fresh elections. So if they follow through on that, Italy will be holding fresh elections. It might be that uh, Draghi, uh, that some of these people change their mind and that he manages to stay on. It could also be that we get a brand new coalition, like uh, president come in, prime minister come in, sorry, with the support of parliament without having fresh elections. But uh, however it works out, there is a good chance that we could have uh, a new government in Italy next week. Now, having a new government in Italy next week, this is not necessarily a huge change of events uh, when we talk about Italian politics. I forget what the statistics are, but it seems like they have had uh, something like 60 prime ministers in the last 50 years or some some crazy number like that. Uh, but help us to understand why if Draghi... Uh, this this problem that uh, Draghi is up against could have bigger implications than, say, your garden variety Italian political crisis. You alluded to the fact that this could actually spark something continent wide. Help us to understand why. Right. A good part of the reason is just the time that this is happening in the middle of this inflation crisis, in the middle of the Ukraine war. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, Italian politics has stabilized somewhat over the last five years or so. They've made some changes to their constitution to try and fix this problem of having a government go every year or more. But you're in this situation, ironically, largely due to Draghi's behavior when he was over the European Central Bank, where you had a massive debt crisis in 2008. And it was all kind of swept under the rug. Enough was done to stop it from blowing up then and there. Uh, but the fundamental problems were not sorted and debt has kept on growing. We've gotten away with that so far. Europe's gotten away with that so far because inflation has been low and interest rates have been at a record low for the past five or six years. And banks like the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve in America and the Bank of England have all been printing money through quantitative easing. And it's this printing money and buying government debt that has kept Italy afloat. The problem is, Italy has a gigantic level of debt. It's one point one and a half times the size of their economy. Uh, pretty much large. I believe that's larger than anyone in the G7. It's certainly bigger than Spain. It's bigger than France. Uh, dramatically so. They they are absolutely massively in debt, and the, that debt is much much higher than it was during the euro crisis. So we kind of think, okay, euro crisis gone away because we don't see headlines about it about European countries. Uh, about to go bust. If anything, the situation is worse than it was uh, during the euro crisis. And already you're seeing signs that Italian, the interest rate that Italians pay on their debt could uh, reach levels where they can't afford to pay it off. It's rising incredibly quickly. So the a cost that it would take Italy to borrow money for a period of the interest rate on their 10-year loans uh, a year ago was 0.7%. Tiny amount of interest on, on long-term debt. Mm -hmm. Start of the year, 1.17%. So uh, that's a fairly significant rise in the amount of interest that they're paying. Now it's 3.4%. Wow. So it's, it's going up fast. And the big red line that everyone talked about during the euro crisis was 7%. This was the level that people said, okay, if it hits 7%, Italy is bust. 
they cannot they cannot pay their debts. Uh, now economists are talking about five percent, at least those at Capital Econ Economics one one analysis, because that debt is so much bigger. Uh, a lower interest rate will kind of trigger that end game scenario. So they're looking at they're getting they're not far off that interest rates are still going up. Mario Draghi is seen as a safe pair of hands. You know, he's seen mm-hmm. as a very clever economist, uh, somebody who the financial markets can trust and that they do trust. So if he's shoved out the window and you have a period of chaos and the economic bad news keeps coming, inflation keeps coming, Germany keeps screaming for a raise in interest rates because they're afraid about losing their savings with this runaway inflation, uh, that could hit the danger zone very quickly. And then that starts to, you know, this starts to spread very fast because if Italian government can't pay off its debts, the Italian banks also go bust because they own large amounts of government debt. And then, well, how do you bail out Italy? Even Germany would have a very hard time bailing out Italy. You, you could, you, Italy could very easily and very quickly build to a continent-wide economic crisis. Now, you know, it's very easy to look at Italy and say there, it, there's bad news there and it's very dangerous. It's hard to say, okay, this is, you know, it's going to explode in exactly two months. Uh, it could have exploded at any time over the past five or six years. It hasn't. Uh, who knows when it, it, it's going to go off. But this is another situation that could cause this massive financial detonation. And we watch Europe closely for this kind of financial uh, detonate, you know, explosion. In 1984, Herbert W. Armstrong wrote that an economic crisis starting in America could suddenly result in triggering European nations to unite as a world power larger than either the Soviet Union or the US. We talk so much on this show about Revelation 17, Revelation 13, this prophecies in the Bible that talks about a new European empire uh, coming in Europe, led by a strongman. And Mr. Armstrong pointed to an economic crisis as something that could be a key catalyst in bringing that massive change to Europe all about, something that gets people looking to a strongman instead of a democracy, something that changes Europe to this union of 10 nations, very tight union of 10 nations, rather than this more loose collective of, of 27. So uh, this is this could be something that could very quickly transform Europe and bring about some of the key prophecies uh, in your Bible. I wrote about these crises and this uh, prophecy back in May in an article titled "As You Struggle with Inflation, Watch Germany," and that goes through the just the, this whole economic crisis, how Europe could respond, and then you know what Bible prophecy says about what is coming to Europe. All right. Outstanding. Thank you very much for uh, making that rather complicated situation pretty easy to understand. And uh, we will definitely watch Italy and how this affects the uh, the broader picture within the entire Eurozone. Uh, it's, it's not difficult to see. As you said, we've been com- uh, looking for a crisis to really change things politically there for quite some time. And uh, the the chances of that actually unfolding seem to increase all the time, especially given uh, the economic and political situation right now. Thank you very much, Mr. Palmer. As bad as the situation is in Italy or what it could lead to, it's far worse right now in Sri Lanka, where a political crisis has the nation in chaos. To learn the latest about this situation, we'll go to Rufaro Manjepa. 
Yes, sir, you're right. Sri Lanka is in quite a mess. On Wednesday, uh, the president, Mr. Gotabaya Rajapaksa, fled the country uh, on the same day that he was supposed to resign. He told everyone that he was resigning. Uh, instead, he just disappeared and he appointed the prime minister, uh, the acting president, instead. Um, everybody, everybody is up in arms over that. They expected him to resign. They wanted him out. He didn't. He didn't do that. And Afterwards, the, the prime minister, come acting president, he, he's named Ranil Vikramasinghe, he declared the state of emergency and enforced a curfew in Sri Lanka. The protesters didn't like that either. And so on Saturday, they decided to, to they, they'd stormed the president's home, his oceanfront office and the prime minister's home after the state of emergency was declared on Wednesday. Uh, they went ahead and they stormed the broadcasting offices. Uh, the live broadcast actually had to be cut because of the protesters entering the studio. And they also managed to breach uh, the prime minister's office compound and even when when helicopters and, and armed forces came with water cannons deploying tear gas it didn't work the the masses weren't to be deterred by all of that and overall it's just a very chaotic situation you know everyone is fed up with the high cost of everything from food to fuel they're fed up with the disastrous policies that the government has put in place that that have resulted in a lot of these problems that they're having and they're really fed up with the corruption of the Rajapaksa family. Um, you know, it's it's. I think there's about forty members of this family that were appointed to the government. Right. Um, and everybody's just just sick of it. You know, they're all holding government positions. It's almost like they're a royal family of sorts of Sri Lanka, and and the entire public is turned against them. It's so bad that on Tuesday. Uh, uh, one one member of the Rajapaksa family, he's the former finance minister, he went to the airport and he wanted to board an, an Emirates flight to the United States. Uh, and he went through the VIP lounge and all of the employees, the immigration officers, uh, everyone just walked out and they refused to serve him. He's stuck in the country right now. They were just like, we're not dealing with anyone like this and and even in those small ways you've got protests against the government but very few things are functioning uh very few things are working and it doesn't look like it's getting any better anytime soon for sri lanka we have uh, an article on the website by richard palmer could america soon look like sri lanka and seeing what's happening there the, the the pictures of the people taking over the presidential palace and all of that have been extremely dramatic but this just the the reality of food shortages, of gas shortages, of the kind of social unrest that comes as a result of that. I think for for anyone worldwide in America, there's been enough of these kinds of conditions, just the taste of them, that it becomes much more uh, visceral watching what's happening there and much more urgent to see just how bad things can get when they're allowed to escalate the way that they have in Sri Lanka. Uh, just talk to us about uh, the numbers that we're seeing there and the ramifications of how they got to this point in Sri Lanka. Right, absolutely. It's, it's, it's definitely dire straits over there for them. You know, Sri Lanka's inflation right now, it's at 20%. Uh, for food items, it's up to 30%. And you think about the fact that, you know, America's 
uh, uh, inflation just hit 9.1% as well, you know, so it's, it's, it's not something that's impossible, you know, and then you think of, uh, the, the debt to GDP ratio as well. You know, Sri Lanka is struggling with that. It can't afford to to pay its debts. Um, it, it actually def- decided to default on its on its debts in May, and it, it can't afford to pay most of them. It needs about $6 billion uh, by the end of the year to be able to tide over everything and everyone in its population. And, and you look at the situation and you wonder where they're going to get that money, um, because obviously people don't want to be lending money to a country that doesn't look like it's going to be capable of paying it. They're trying to secure a loan deal with the IMF um, to, to see if they can get something to, to tide them over. But for them to do that, they need to be able to prove that they can restore their economy first, which looks highly unlikely. Even if they are able to prove that, it will take months for a deal to be to be um, put in place with the IMF, you know. And then you throw in the fact that they owe a lot of money to different different nations. You know, I spoke about how they defaulted on their debts uh, in May, even with defaulting, they still owe about thirty five billion dollars. Um, to different countries like the Chinese, like India, and the debt to China in particular is is worrisome. You know, they fell for this debt trap diplomacy. They've already lost a port um, to China that they had to lease to them for 99 years. You know, and you wonder now in this situation what's going to happen to Sri Lanka. And um, Bible prophecy actually has a lot to say about that um, because uh, the situation really is that. You know, uh, there's the prophecy in Revelation 16 that talks about the kings of the East, and it's it's this major alliance uh, of Asiatic nations, you know, and it, it's led by Russia, and China is then secondary support. And what you can see with these developments here is, you know, Sri Lanka was already in China's orbit. You know, with this particular crisis that it's going through right now, it's only going to be drawn further into that orbit. It's only going to be mm-hmm. even more dependent on a nation like China to bail it out and and you know have to give up a lot more of its resources and 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 different things that it has in order to 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 get out of the situation that it's in. So that's definitely something to watch for uh, and and it's it's something that's you know doesn't look like it's going to get any better anytime soon for Sri Lanka. We will link to the uh, the article that Richard Palmer wrote on this subject. Could America soon look like Sri Lanka? Is there uh, an article that describes that uh, that prophecy, the larger prophecy of the Asian unification that you're talking about that you would point our listeners to? Yeah, I would also suggest uh, taking a look at uh, Abraham Blondo's article, The Sri Lanka Revolution. It, it definitely goes into a lot of those details and gives a clear picture of the prophetic angle there. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Manyepa. U.S. President Joe Biden visited Israel this week, and he said a lot about the strength of the relationship between these two countries. But as Jesus Christ said, we need to judge not by words, but by fruits, by deeds and actions. And by that measure, what did President Biden's visit teach us? For this, we'll turn to Josh Taylor. That's absolutely right. And even many political analysts such as and writers and journalists such as Melanie, Melanie Phillips are saying the exact same thing as that, that we need to judge by the actions and not by the words. Uh, This week, during his visit to Israel and the Middle East at large, 
Joe Biden said that he was proud of America and Israeli relations and that they were deeper and stronger, in my view, than it's ever been. And when he met with uh, the, the interim uh, prime minister in Israel, uh, Yair Lapid, he praised Biden as one of the best friends that Israel has ever known. So that's pretty high praise, uh, considering that this that Joe Biden's presidency just comes on the heels of Donald Trump, who was very much a, a great friend of Israel, as we've talked about before. And just with Joe looking at Joe Biden's actions and his, the actions of his administration, uh, when Trump did make the decision to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, he received great backlash and pushback from Democrats, including Joe Biden. And even during his presidency, Joe Biden has wanted to reopen the, the Palestinian consulate and admission to the Palestinians. And he received a lot of backlash from that. So his trip to Israel this uh, this week has just been a continuation of what we've already seen. So two big uh, notes and two high points or low points, if you want to call it that, from his trip was his visit to the Augusta Victoria uh, Arab Hospital in eastern Jerusalem where he announced a package of a $100 million in aid to Palestinian healthcare projects. Now, that on its face wouldn't seem too big, except that this hospital is in uh, Jerusalem's disputed territory. And this is the first time a US president has visited that, that territory. And when he went, he chose to go without any Israeli officials accompanying him, which was just a clear snub and insult to Israel. And then just today, uh, July 15th, he had a joint press conference with the Palestinian Authority chief Mahmoud Abbas, where he reaffirmed his commitment to a two-state solution for peace. And he said, quote, my commitment to that goal of a two-state solution has not changed. And then further on, he said, the Palestinian people deserve a state of their own, two states for two peoples, both of whom have deep and ancient roots in this land, living side by side in peace and security. It uh, becomes quite obvious when you look at the decisions made by uh, President Biden, just how different his attitude, his approach toward Israel is than his predecessor. Uh, Donald Trump was the most pro-Israel president that uh, America has had for quite some time. And, and he made a lot of really bold moves to show his genuine support. Again, you talk about the difference between words and actions. He really took actions that showed how much he supported Israel. The contrast couldn't be more stark. Absolutely. When Donald Trump uh, visited Israel, he did something that was unprecedented for a U.S. president. He went and visited the Western Wall, which for the Jews and, and the Israelis is a really big thing. Because for them, that Western Wall connects them, uh, they believe, to their heritage, to their connection to the Holy Land, their historic claim on it. They believe that that Western Wall is or was a part of the Second Temple. So it's one of the holiest sites in their entire religion. Uh, so that's massive for them. And for a president like um, Donald Trump to visit that wall was just a geopolitical statement saying that I support Israel, I support Israel's claim to this land and to Jerusalem specifically. Whereas you look at Joe Biden and his what he's done with what I just mentioned, he declined to visit the Western Wall, which again, no no US president other than Trump has done. But then he set the precedent by, by visiting the, that disputed territory. So the difference between the two is clear and obvious. Trump, while he was attacked, he was called, he was called anti-Semitic, he, his actions showed that he supported Israel. Whereas 
Joe Biden, what he's done, uh, just shows that he's supporting the Palestinians and in many ways just insulting and snubbing the Israelis. And uh, as our readers know, Joe Biden right now, this is more of Obama's third term. It's just a continuation of all the policies under uh, Obama. And on the trumpet, we have really emphasized how uh, connected that Israel, Britain, and America are. They're a band of brothers. They're very they they're the Western bloc and have always and since World War II and Israel's formation have been strong have had strong ties. But then when Obama came in in his presidency, we've saw a decline, an attack on that bond, and that's something that we see in Bible prophecy. And Mr. Flurry pointed out a prophecy in Zechariah 11 verse 14 where he's uh, quoting the verse then I cut asunder mine uh, mine other staff even bands that I may break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel now um, Mr. Armstrong uh, proved in the United States and Britain and prophecy that Israel refers to end time Israel meaning and uh, he proved that that's America Britain uh, and the Ephraim uh, the Ephraimite and Manasseh nations Whereas Judah here specifically is referring to the nation called Israel today, the Jewish people. And that special brotherhood, that special uh, connection that they've had since Churchill, basically, is being destroyed and being attacked. And we're seeing that band, those bands, that brotherhood being broken. And that's what we continue, we expect to see, especially going forward under, under this uh, basically Obama third term, is more of that being destroyed. We have a reprint article that talks about that prophetic connection between America and Israel and how that will be broken. It's called Band of Brothers, and we'll link to that in the show notes. We thank you very much for that, Mr. Taylor. The latest reports show that inflation in the United States just keeps rising, and economists say the worst is yet to come. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, for a while there, it seems like we were hearing that there might be some light at the end of the tunnel and that the Fed rate hikes were actually going to slowly bring down inflation uh, by the end of this year. I think uh, Jerome Powell uh, finally admitted this week that it was like, well, maybe we don't know as much about inflation as we thought because uh, the inflation rate is not going down, but rather just keeps rising, as you said. The, uh, the latest numbers came out for June, had the inflation rate at 9.1% uh, over the year before. So that's the highest inflation level since November 1981 uh, and uh, may keep going up from there. The uh, Actually, the core inflation rate, which is that's the inflation rate when you don't count rising food prices and rising energy prices, did actually go down a little bit. They said like things that aren't food or gas uh, are only inflating at about 5.9%. Uh, but food prices are up over 10% from a year ago, and gasoline prices are up almost 60% from a year ago. So those are the, the two things really causing a lot of pain uh, in America right now. And uh, as you said, that's probably likely to get quite a bit worse uh, before it gets better. I'm actually working on an article right now about the Great Reset, where I've, uh, I, I recently read uh, Klaus Schwab's book, COVID-19, The Great Reset. He's a, a German engineer, economist, and the founder of the World Economic Forum. Uh, really interesting, because uh, it really kind of uh, that and some other reading proves that the, these elites in America and other nations aren't necessarily caught off guard, not as right. caught off guard as you are, 
about the inflation crisis. The World Economic Forum was actually running sim simulations of how to deal with a global pandemic for two years um, before COVID-19 broke out. And the last one was actually a simulation on how to deal with a novel coronavirus pandemic. So I'm not, I'm not going to weigh in today on whether uh, COVID-19 was deliberately leaked from the Wuhan lab, but whether it was or whether it wasn't, uh, the economists at the World Economic Forum already had a detailed plan on how to deal with a coronavirus pandemic specifically that called for lockdowns, that uh, predicted mass unemployment, and that um, called for stimulus spending. And so all the nations together spent about 20% of the planet's gross world product in COVID stimulus packages. So it makes sense that <laughs> the currencies of the world will probably uh, inflate away by about 20% before inflation <laughs> comes down back to normal. And so they, they knew this when it happened uh, and they, they knew it was gonna inflate the currencies. And this, uh, this book, COVID-19, The Great Reset, uh, even, um, even talks about how COVID-19 is an opportunity to uh, overturn the Bretton Woods institutions that have dominated the world since World War II. Now, the, those Bretton Woods institutions prop up the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency. So it's basically this, this German engineer and his friends uh, in Davos, Switzerland, are talking about how this COVID stimulus spending is really an opportunity for them to unseat the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if it feels like your dollars are buying less... Uh, it's because of the COVID stimulus spending and other factors. And uh, the people who put those COVID stimulus spending packages in place knew that before it did it. And and many of them, especially on the European side of things, are actually pretty excited uh, about the chance to unseat the dollar. Now, granted, <laughs> the, the same stimulus spending that's destroying the dollar is destroying the euro and the yuan and mm. basically every other <clears throat> currency on earth. Uh, but that gets back to a little bit about what Richard was talking earlier in the, the program uh, about the fact that many people, um, Adrian Hilton and a number of other like British economists, uh, have been predicting since the euro was launched in 1999 uh, or just after that th this was always a currency that was kind of designed to fail. Mm -hmm. You bound together Europe in a common union with a common currency and a common interest rate, but no common fiscal policy, no common tax policy, right. no common spending policy. So the, the the tensions there were bound to either make this currency fall apart or force the nations of Europe to surrender their tax policy and their spending policy and their fiscal policy uh, over to a German central authority. And, uh, and Klaus Schwab makes that point also in his, uh, <laughs> his book, COVID-19, The Great Reset. They said Europe, he said the euro could become the new reserve currency, uh, but not until the risk of the eurozone falling apart has been dealt with. So basically he said, he said not until Europe becomes a super state is it in a position to launch a new currency uh, that could replace the dollar. But the uh, this uh, this COVID stimulus spending is really, I mean, it's it's destroying the dollar and creating the political impetus that's forcing European nations to uh, to surrender some of their freedom, some of their uh, their fiscal independence to a central authority that could uh, replace the dollar, which is all which is all very prophetic. I guess the the article I'd recommend for the show notes is by our editor in chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry. 
uh, titled How the Global Financial Crisis Will Produce Europe's Ten Kings. Uh, that was uh, published in October 2015, so about seven years ago. Uh, and quotes from that coworker letter Richard mentioned uh, from 1984, where Mr. Armstrong uh, predicted that a, a, a banking crisis would prompt Europe to unite into a, a power block stronger than the United States or the um, the Soviet Union. And so that, that that article definitely showed that that's something uh, we've been predicting for a long time is that like a currency crisis is going to dethrone the dollar and cause Europe to unite in a in a super state. And and really this uh, this COVID-19 stimulus package, which nations around the world have implemented, but has kind of been masterminded by this uh, this World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, has really provided, uh, I guess, what you could call the global elites. Uh, with their chance to overthrow the dollar and replace it with a, a European a European reserve currency, really provided them with a bigger opportunity to do that than uh, than anything that's happened in the past. Well, since the end of World War II. Mm. Yeah, quite quite remarkable uh, to see how this is developing. Klaus Schwab is a creepy dude. We we actually had. Uh, uh, a, a segment by uh, Philip Nice about the World Economic Forum on Wednesday's program. And uh, it's just terrible that we have uh, an administration in the United States that is on board with this agenda that you're talking about that really does threaten to uh, to upend the dollar and its status as the reserve currency and change the, uh, the global economy to uh, a, a European-centric model. Um, but what's what's remarkable to me is just how much more and more of this is being exposed. There's been a lot of this type of thinking in the world for quite some time. But, you know, now we have the videos and we hear the speeches from Schwab and we, he, he's published his his book. Uh, and so much of this information is out there that helps us to see this absolutely plain and clear what the agenda is. Uh, that's being unfolded. It's it's as Gerald Flurry has said so many times. It's not incompetence. Uh, there is uh, a, a real agenda behind this, and it's an agenda. It's an anti-American agenda. It's an anti-Israel agenda, um, and it's it's being exposed in a quite remarkable fashion. Thanks for bringing that to us. We will link to that article. How the Global Financial Crisis Will Produce Europe's Ten Kings. You can find that in show notes for the program today. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, how Japan is responding to the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, the implications of Russia shutting down the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, Iran supplying Russia with military drones, and Merrick Garland's war against America's states. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. We spoke last week about the shocking assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe in Japan. Well, we uh, very quickly got a look at just how this country might respond, how this might change Japan politically, even militarily. For this, we'll go back to Rufaro Manyepa. Yes, on Sunday, Japan held parliamentary elections that 
went a long way in pointing just how this pacifist nation is is gradually rearming itself. The Liberal Democratic Party, it's not only the party of Fumio Kishida, the current Japanese prime minister, but it's also the party of the late Shinzo Abe, who was assassinated last week. And the timing of, of these elections and the results is quite remarkable. Uh, the Liberal Democrats were in many ways uh, shaped by Abe's uh, policies as a, himself and the party stance overall does mirror uh, Shinzo Abe's personal aims he was Japan's longest serving political leader and even though he stepped down as prime minister two years ago uh, he was still very influential in the party and one of its major stances is how it greatly advocated for the remilitarization of Japan now, since the end of World War II, Japan has been constitutionally bound to its current state of pacifism. Uh, Article 9 specifically forbids it from establishing and maintaining a military. But Sunday's overwhelming election victory means that the Liberal Democratic Party is now in the majority in both the upper and lower houses of parliament. Therefore, they have enough seats and votes to be able to change the Japanese constitution. Now, Japan has the third largest economy in the world. Before uh, these elections, uh, it was already kind of trending towards what, what, it's, uh, what has been like validated by these elections. It decided to double its defense spending from 1% of its GDP to 2% of its GDP uh, using NATO as the threshold uh, for, for a good benchmark. But because of its uh, size, because of the size of its economy in relation to its population size, uh, because of its relative social stability and pretty efficient systems, Japan can raise up an incredibly powerful military in a very short space of time. And now we're seeing a situation where, you know, Article 9 could be revoked in the exact same year that Japan decides to increase its defense budget. And it's really interesting that these elections took place right after Shinzo Abe died. And I wouldn't say that the Japanese voted in such a significant way, specifically because of sympathy for Mr. Abe. But I think it does show just how much the prospect of embracing militarization resonates with the average Japanese. We, we could say that you know, that militarization, that casting aside of Article 9 is the signature policy that that put aside uh, that 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 set apart this liberal democratic party that set apart Shinzo Abe. And the Japanese voted overwhelmingly for that and other other more hardline policies. So I, I think it is significant just seeing what the average Japanese thinks they should be doing and how that matches up what likely the government is going to do going forward it's it's hard not to to sympathize to some degree with japan when you look at just how aggressive china is being you look at the larger picture of uh, of what's happening in asia and there are a lot of japanese people who uh, are really concerned and feel like they need to uh, brace themselves to be able to resist that kind of aggression that has really uh, overwhelmed a lot of nations in the Asian sphere. Uh, it's interesting to look at this, though, from the standpoint of biblical prophecy. It's quite a different perspective. Uh, 
maybe you could give us the overview of what prophecy tells us to expect in terms of Japan's future and Asia's future. Absolutely. And, and that is the, the interesting interplay between, you know, what's going on uh, at present and what the Bible has to say about it, because for sure, one major reason why Japan wants to militarize is because of the perceived threat from China. And, you know, China is powerful, it's aggressive, it's close to Russia, uh, Russia, which is in, engaged in the invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, if China follows suit and invades and takes over Taiwan, southern Japan is all of a sudden vulnerable, you know, so Japan does want to be strong enough to be able to resist that. And um, you will hear a lot of analysts talk about this weariness of Chinese aggression uh, as driving Japan. And a lot of them are predicting that Japan is going to uh, align itself with the United States against China in the long run. But the trumpet makes a very different prediction. And, you know, we, we look at the fact that China, for its part, has been working to heal relations with Japan. And Japan, too, um, would prefer, honestly, to, to have uh, better relations with China than to be engaged in hostilities. And that's why we believe that, you know, the China threat is driving a lot of this Japanese uh, rearmament, but these two nations will ultimately come together. And that prediction is based in Bible prophecy. You know, Revelation 16 verse 12 talks about a powerful military alliance, the kings of the east. You know, that very name communicates where these powers are going to come from. And Ezekiel 30, 38 goes to shed in more light and specificity uh, about the, the composition of this alliance. It talks about how Russia will be at the head of the alliance and it's going to be supported secondarily by China. But you look at verse 6 of that chapter and it, it speaks of Gomer and Togarma being a part of this, uh, this power block and it's going to be lending its military power to it. These are both ancient names for the main peoples who make up modern Japan. And so we're watching for that trend here at the trumpet, and, and it's it's very different from what people in the world think. It's it's different from you know what you would believe would be happening, but you can see that this development, this this military rearmament that's happening now is definitely going to lend its way towards this prophecy being fulfilled, as the Bible predicts. All right, thank you very much for that, Rufaro. We have a, uh, a booklet, Russia and China in Prophecy, and Chapter 5 is specifically about Japan. The title of that is Japan's Place in the Future. We'll link to that in the show notes for the program today. Russia has shut down the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, and it says that this is for maintenance. But when you consider just how strategically important this pipeline is, you know there's far more behind this decision than appears for a look at what could well be going on behind the scenes we'll go back to richard palmer yes even uh, russian leaders have been making not so subtle comments around uh, uh this pipeline shut down along the lines of yes we've shut this down for maintenance uh but maybe it's a good idea to keep it shut down unless we get a few concessions on the sanctions side of things some have been calling this Europe's worst nightmare. The uh, Nord Stream 1 pipeline supplies a whole lot of gas uh, to Germany. Normally, this pipeline being shut down would not be that big of a deal because Russia would just send that gas to Germany via Ukraine instead. Uh, obviously, 
that's not really happening. So you have this situation now where um, this this pipeline is being shut down and Germany is being cut off basically from Russian gas and not just Germany, a, a whole lot of, of Europe as well. They, uh, again, during the summer, not so much a big deal, but this is exactly what Russia did last summer, find excuses to prevent Europe from filling up their storage tanks so that when winter comes, they're very much dependent on Russia to keep that gas flowing. And you can tell that this strategy is already working because Germany has already been lobbying to relax sanctions on Russia because of this Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, they persuaded, and I think they got even America to help twist Canada's arm about uh, a, a, a particular turbine piece that was needed to uh, complete or to, for, needed for Nord Stream One, or that Russia said they needed. And uh, Germany got the sanctions lifted that would typically apply to this, uh, and uh, had that sent over to to Russia. Germany also got san- European sanctions changed on Russia. European sanctions. Russia has a little enclave, Karleningrad. Um, yeah, Karleningrad used to be Konigsberg, uh, but they've got this little enclave in Europe that's completely surrounded by other European countries, by Poland and Lithuania. Uh, the EU basically cut that little Russian enclave off. They besieged it. Uh, they said only limited amount of resources would be able to pass through to it. And then Germany got Europe to lift that pretty much entirely and say that goods could continue back to pre-Ukrainian uh, invasion levels. So Russia very, or Germany very clearly kind of uh, having this gas relationship with Russia and using that to levy, levy sanctions. Eurointelligence has been speculating or saying there's a very good chance that this Nord Stream pipeline could lead to uh, more of that kind of behavior, albeit behind the scenes. that They talked today in their briefing today about a dirty deal uh, with Putin. They said it wouldn't be announced, probably wouldn't even come out for another couple of years. Uh, but it may well be that in, in exchange for Russia lifting this, Germany is going to continue to allow trade with Russia, promise to keep buying gas from Russia for another 10 years, keep undermining sanctions from within. And the critical thing to remember all about this is that Germany's dependence on Russian gas is not an accident. This is what Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry really focused on towards the end of last year, that German industrialists deliberately set up this situation because it ties Germany to Russia. And it creates this very permanent relationship between Germany and, and Russia. And uh, even, even Euro intelligence briefing talked about this uh, and about how that uh, German industry has a very long tradition of coddling dictators, they wrote. So this is something that's deliberately been created. It deliberately ties Germany to Russia. And you're seeing this exposed throughout the whole Ukrainian invasion. And Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote about all of this in the July 2022 uh, Trumpet print edition, Germany's secret deal with Russia exposed. That goes through exactly all the, so many ways that Germany is supporting Russia in this invasion, how German industry has been behind that. Uh, and how this is really critical prophetically. It shows a Germany working to bring down the United States and working to do so in an underhand way, which is exactly what Herbert W. Armstrong talked about, exactly what Mr. Flurry has been talking about, because that's exactly the type of relationship the Bible talks about, a Germany that's trying to bring down America while pretending to be America's friend. It is just a really dramatic and detailed fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So that, that article is Germany's secret deal with Russia exposed. 
Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Palmer. The uh, the mutually beneficial relationship between Russia and Iran made some headlines this week. To learn about this, we'll go back to Josh Taylor. On Monday, U.S. National Security Advisor Jack Sullivan said that Iran is providing armed drones to Russia for use in their war in Ukraine. Also, Washington has inf- information that Iran will be training Russian forces how to use these drones in the coming weeks. What makes this particularly interesting is that this announcement follows on another one on Tuesday where the Kremlin announced Vladimir Putin would be visiting Iran for a trilateral meeting between Russia, Iran, and Turkey. And again, this also follows uh, from what we talked about in the first uh, segment where Joe Biden visited the Middle East. So we are seeing the U.S.'s influence just continuing to plummet in the Middle East as Russia, Iran, China and Saudi Arabia and many other of these nations are coming together for different uh, for coming together and just strengthening their ties, strengthening their relationships. This is all in uh, all in the face of U.S. influence, just continuing to wane Uh, with the war going on in Ukraine. Russia has not been as involved in the Middle East, and that's because its attention is, of course, focused on the war in Ukraine. And we've seen uh, Russia pulling away from Turkey, pulling away from many of those kind of traditional allies they have there. But Putin has been saying with this visit, Putin is declaring to the world that he is still involved in the Middle East, that he is still there and he still intends to be a major player. Now, as the United States continues to pull away from uh, from not only the Middle East, but all the regions in the world, we are seeing Russia and China just jumping into that power vacuum, jumping in. And Mr. Gerald Floyd talks quite a bit about this, about how America's weakness is allowing these powers, what we call the Gentile nations, these Gentile powers, non-Israelite nations, to fill that power vacuum. Uh, And he bases that off of a prophecy made in Luke 21, verse 24, uh, calling the end time that we're living in the times of the Gentiles. As America gets weaker, these Gentile powers are going to continue to rise. And for more information on that, you can our readers can and listeners can go to thetrumpet.com to see the reprint article, What Are the Times of the Gentiles by Mr. Joe Fleury. What are the times of the Gentiles? We'll link to that article in the show notes. Thank you very much, Mr. Taylor. In the United States, we hear the left talk about the dangers to democracy posed by Donald Trump and conservatives. But the Biden administration is taking stunning steps to undermine the American republic, specifically the balance of power between the federal government and the states. To learn about this, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the recent overturning of the Roe v. Wade case that uh, established uh, a false constitutional right to abortion uh, is building tension between the federal government and the states like like few things in recent years have. Nine states have already banned abortion now that the Supreme Court has allowed them to do so. Uh, and over a dozen other states look like they may follow suit soon. And so the Biden administration, uh, particularly uh, Merrick Garland's Department of Justice, is doing everything it can to uh, to try to keep abortion access in these states. Now, they can't keep the abortion clinics open uh, without that Roe v. Wade case to empower them to do so. Uh, But Garland has established uh, a task force that's going to prosecute states that try to pass any laws that would make it inconvenient for a woman to travel to another state where abortion is legal and visit a clinic there. Uh, 
Uh, and he's also looking at prosecuting pharmacies, uh, even in states where abortion is illegal, that refuse to sell uh, over-the-counter drugs that um, that allow you to uh, abort your um, abort your unborn child within the first week after conception. So basically, he's saying that, like, okay, well, the the Roe v. Wade overturn says that states can shut down the abortion clinics, but the federal government might still be able to like increase people's access to drugs that enable you to do an abortion at home. And so there, uh, there looks like there's going to be uh, some pushback from the states and the federal government uh, over this. Quite a bit of tension building between the Department of Justice uh, and the states, which is really kind of a, a major theme uh, on many issues throughout America right now. The other big issue where, where Merrick Garland is coming into contact with the states is over uh, illegal immigration. With uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, he uh, issued an executive order just recently basically uh, having Texas National Guard forces and Texas state troopers start uh, doing what the federal government's refusing to do uh, apprehending illegal immigrants on the border and deporting them back to Mexico. And so, um, yeah, Greg Abbott, he, he released this order and, and cited Article 4, uh, Section 4 of the United States Constitution, which uh, says that the federal government is obligated to provide every state with a Republican form of government and protect them from invasion. Abbott saying that this illegal immigration crisis is now basically an invasion of the state of Texas, which the Biden administration has refused to protect them from. So he's going to step in and start protecting his people himself. Uh, and Merrick Garland, again, he's uh, he's trying to prosecute Texas for a violation of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, basically saying that a state government can't do that. And so that uh, that particular decision reveals that it's definitely the Biden administration. The immigration crisis isn't because the Biden administration lacks the resources mm -hmm. to defend the border because Greg Abbott's made it very well. He's like, I'll do it myself if you won't. And they're like, oh, no, we'll actually devote state resources to stopping you uh -huh. from enforcing immigration law uh, because it's like we're not we're not refusing to enforce it because we don't have the resources. We're refusing to enforce it because we want all these um, socialist <laughs> immigrants from Central America to come here, get citizenship, and vote Democrat. And so that's just another issue where the uh, the states and the, the federal government are going to be uh, in conflict. Uh, s several news sites have compared both this and the uh, abortion conflict to basically the antebellum period before the 19th Civil War, where you have these states' rights over the Fugitive Slave Act and other things like what can a state enforce, what can the federal government enforce, that ultimately led to a war between the states mm -hmm. um, or a war between the states and the, the federal government. Uh, and, and some of um, some political analysts are even saying that something like that could happen again, uh, which is definitely um, what, something we've been talking about for a long time versus like Ezekiel 5 and verse 12 that talks about a third of the population dying in the, the pestilence and the famine and the rioting that results from civil war. And so I definitely recommend our editor-in-chief's new and greatly expanded booklet, uh, America Under Attack to um, explain more about the, the spirit behind this attack on America and the, the prophecies regarding to, uh, to riots and, and civil war-like conditions uh, 
that are prophesied to happen in America in the near future. We spoke in the first half about just the uh, the exposure of these uh, very dangerous agendas, uh, and we see that with the inflation crisis in the United States, we see a lot of information out there showing what's behind that. What's happened with Roe v. Wade and abortion rights in America, what's happening with illegal immigration, again, it's exposing the agenda that the left is is enacting here in a remarkable way, and it's it's kind of stunning to see. Uh, I mean, it took quite a long time, but for for say Governor Abbott and some of these other more conservative leaders, it seems like they have awakened to just how dangerous this threat is that's posed by our own leaders within this country, taking steps to try to uh, to to put a, a limit around that, uh, and it is really leading to the kind of civil war that exactly is is prophesied in the bible that we've been talking about for quite some time we we see uh just the the tensions increasing by the day it's remarkable to see this uh, unfolding and as you said america under attack an excellent resource to uh, to really understand the spiritual dimension behind this trend thank you very much mr miller i'm joel hilliker and that's it for trumpet hour today email us your thoughts on the program to letters at the trumpet.com thanks to our panel Andrew Miller, Rufaro Maniepa, Josh Taylor, and Richard Palmer. And thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Harold J. Smith. More people would learn from their mistakes if they weren't so busy denying them. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.